Let me read uh, the scripture verse this morning. Matthew 18, verse 15 through 20. It reads, If a believer does something wrong, go, confront him when the two of you are alone. If he listens to you, you have won back that believer. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you, so that every accusation may be verified by two or three witnesses. If he ignores these witnesses, tell it to the community or believers. If he also ignores the community, deal with him as you would a heathen or tax collector. I can guarantee this truth. Whatever you imprison, God will imprison. And whatever you set free, God will set free. I can guarantee again that if two of you, if two of you agree on anything here on earth, my Father in heaven will accept it. Where two or three have come together in my name, I'm here among them. Once again, to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and this time first turn to chapter 16. We're going to look at something there just briefly before we get into chapter 18. So Matthew chapter 16, and we'll look at verse 19 in just a few minutes, so... We're going to be talking about church discipline, its purpose, procedures, and responsibilities. Purpose, procedures, and responsibilities of church discipline. As I've said before in our series in Ephesians 5, that Jesus loves His church, and He loves individuals so much that He will not allow them to remain in sin. He will do whatever it takes to deal with their sins. And that sometimes requires serious and painful steps. Jesus often carries out those painful steps through churches under the leadership of elders. Elders have the sobering responsibility of, of overseeing the flock. I want to read a, a few verses. Uh, you don't have to turn there. But 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, about this sobering responsibility that uh, that elders, shepherds have. Peter tells elders, 1 Peter 5, 2, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And then another passage that has responsibilities not only for the leaders, the elders of the churches, but also for the congregation, for all of us within those churches. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. The writer there says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Those of us who are your elders are sobered by this, our accountability to the Lord. We are accountable to faithfully watch over your souls. Now, you too, as I mentioned, have responsibilities in that verse, Hebrews thirteen seventeen. First, the writer says to obey. Actually, the word means to put your confidence in. Put your confidence in your leaders. Then he says to submit to those leaders. 
And then a verse that, or a part of the verse that gets overlooked a lot. Talking to you about your leaders, let them do this, this work of oversight, shepherding, shepherding your souls. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. And we need to take that seriously. Um, All of us do. And not to overlook that. Things like church discipline are painful. But we have to remember that sometimes painful things are indeed acts of love. And church discipline is an act of love. It's an act of love for the person who is the member who is in sin and unrepentant. It's an act of love for the church to seek to preserve the church's purity It is an act of love for Christ because it is His reputation that we can muddy if we don't deal with sin. Church discipline, this is what we're kind of driving home today. Church discipline seeks to restore a sinning believer to righteous living. Church discipline seeks to restore a sinning believer to righteous living. That's the the purpose in this. It's not to punish. And now, when you are receiving discipline, and this is the same in parent-child relationships, right? When the child is receiving discipline, they, I don't, I don't think I've ever known anyone that said, yeah, I felt loved in that moment. Uh, it felt like punishment. But we need to understand it rightly. See, there's there's a very positive goal in this painful but loving process. Jesus said that if you convince your brother to repent, there in Matthew 18, he says, you have won your brother. You've gained something very valuable. You have, re- you have restored your brother to a right relationship with you if he sinned against you, but also you restored him to a right relationship with Christ. And that is a valuable thing. That's why he uses that word, one, that to gain something valuable. Also, in Hebrews twelve eleven, the writer there says, when each of us has been trained by discipline, afterward, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so, the, the discipline process should result in peace, and righteousness, those go together, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, if you're a member of Grace Bible Church, you have submitted to yourself to our bylaws. And this, what, we're, what we exercise and what I'm going to be explaining to you is it reflects our bylaws, which reflect the Scriptures. We did the hard work of going to the Scriptures and say, what does this say about all of these different practices of church life? But we want to take some time to elaborate on that process, and particularly Matthew 18 that Avery read, and then Titus 3.10. We'll talk about that at the end. Jesus gave authority to to the church. Uh, church discipline, he gave that, he gave the authority for church discipline to the church. That's the keys of the kingdom that he talks about in, in Matthew 16. 
You know, there, those, that verse gets a lot of interesting interpretations uh, in the history of the church. But he's talking about these keys of the kingdom is the authority both to receive members and when needed to discipline or even expel members. You see, in Matthew 16 there, Jesus asked the disciples, you know, who do men say that I am, and then who do you say that I am? And then Peter had that that beautiful, wonderful confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so, the church of Jesus Christ is made up only of those who also, like Peter, declare and believe that very thing. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But we have to talk about, okay, so just saying that alone is not enough. How do we understand that they believe that and they they rest in that truth? Well, and that's where he talks about the keys of the kingdom. These are those who, you know, that you will receive. And then we're going to see that that ties in with Matthew 16 in a moment. So look with me, Matthew 16, verse 19, where Jesus in that discussion says this. Talking to Peter as an example of those who have made that confession. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This has to be understood in light of that same binding and loosing that he's going to talk about in the passage that Avery read for us in Matthew 18. So you can turn on over there to Matthew 18. And let's look at verses 18 through 20. I want to make some comments on that before we look at the verses right prior to it because it helps us to understand what is going on with with all of this. What is Jesus talking about with this binding and loosing? And so Jesus there talking in this context of church discipline. And this picks up that same thought from Matthew 16 and helps us to better understand what he's talking about. He says, Matthew Matthew 18, verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, and that is not a blanket statement, okay? It ties back to what we're going to talk about in a minute, but he said a few verses earlier about where two or three confirm the facts. Okay, so we're going to come back to that. Where two or three of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask in relation to church discipline, it shall be done for them by my Father who's in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in your midst. Now, to understand that, first, what he's saying literally is that uh, in, in the Net Bible, New English Translation actually says it literally, Whatever you have bound, whatever you bind on earth, it will have been bound in heaven. So it will have already been done, which is the way that the Holman Christian Standard puts it. So it makes it even simpler. It will have already been bound in heaven. So it's not that what we do here on earth and then God says, okay, got it, now let me do that. It's not that at all. I mean, that's backwards, right? So he's saying that, so when you go through this process that we're going to work our way through in just a minute... When you do that, 
you are doing what God has already done in heaven. <clears throat> See, Jesus said that when we exercise church discipline according to his instructions, he says, in my name, according to his character and according to his instructions given here in the text. He says that we are aligning ourselves with God in heaven. That is what we are doing. In churches who, who neglect church discipline, they are neglect, they're not aligning with God in heaven. When they allow sin to go on in their midst and they do nothing about it. The Corinthians were doing that, right? We'll talk briefly about that in 1 Corinthians 5. And they were not aligning themselves with God in heaven. But when we carry through with the process the way Jesus said to, we are aligning ourselves with God in heaven. So he's already decided that and we basically are getting on board with him. We know this because he's revealed his will for dealing with sin. He's revealed it in the scriptures. You see, so that's how we know. We look at, okay, what has he said here? We see sin. How do we deal with it? We follow his instructions. So we know that this is what's going on in heaven. That which is either bound or loosed in heaven then is bound or loosed here on earth. So, when we obey scripture... We agree with God in heaven. That's what he's saying here. When we obey Scripture, when we carry it out, we're agreeing with God in heaven. So, as I said, authority was given to the church for church discipline, and the church was initially led by the apostles. And we find in 1 Corinthians 5 that that's exactly what happened. Paul said, okay... I have done this and I'll be with you in spirit when you gather together, you put this man out of the assembly. So he was leading those that early church and elders are are being formed during that time and they're learning the ropes, but the apostles are still around. And so while they were still around, what, what they were doing is they were taking the lead because Jesus had given this to them as the church, as the leaders of the church. Okay. But then that leadership transitioned from the apostles to the elders of each assembly. So you'll see with on the slide there we have Jesus giving authority, and he's giving authority to the church, okay? So the big box is the church. Now, part of the church originally was the apostles, okay? They were they are a part of the church. They remember are the foundation. And and we we learn back in Ephesians two, they're the foundation of the church. And so they're a part of the church, but they were the ones who were leading the church. Okay? And so they, there's, that's their lead. And so I've got the little black arrow pointing down is that they're leading the church. They're part of the church. They're, they were leading it. Now, but they faded from the scene in God's plan and the, the leadership there was passed to the elders of the churches. And so the elders would be the ones to lead in these things, just as the apostles had done. But the authority itself is with the church. Paul said in Ephesians, or 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4, he says, Do this when you are assembled. In other words, he's telling them, okay, there's this problem in your church, and I want you to deal with it according to my instructions the next time you meet together as a church. So in your next worship service, you need to deal with this. And when he reflects back, I think, on that same situation, but some people disagree and think it's a different situation, doesn't matter. 
it was carried out, he says, by the majority. Okay, in other words, by the church. Okay, it's not just the elders, it's not just the apostles, it's by the majority. Okay, so they are led by either the apostles or the elders. <clears throat> so when the church receives or removes members the way it is now in the life of the church or churches, the elders are the Lord's servants to act as judge in these matters and to instruct the church in its duties. See, and this is the practice of our church that if you remember, you're a member here, you've been through. Okay, The elders determine who is ready for membership. We interview people, and when they say, I'd like to become a member, we interview them. We ask them to give us their testimony. We ask them questions. We let them ask questions. But we determine, and there have been times where we have said, I, I don't think you're ready to become a member because in our minds we're not confident that they truly rest in the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So we don't feel like they really either understand the gospel or that they have trusted in that gospel of Jesus. And so the elders determine who is ready for membership, and then they instruct the church to receive them. And so what happens then is we may uh, they may need to be baptized, and so we'll baptize them. But when they give their testimony, the elders will set that up. We'll have them give their testimony, and then we instruct you to receive them. And that you, know, you don't have to all come up necessarily and shake their hands. Some churches do that, and that's fine. Um, but you you do that within your heart and in your relationship with them. You've now embraced them in your mind and in your heart as a brother or sister in Christ. Okay, But the elders determine who is ready, and then we instruct you to receive them. The elders also determine who must be removed from membership, and they instruct the church to put the unrepentant members out of the church. Why is this? Well, as we look at the whole New Testament, and Jesus in Matthew 18 doesn't talk about the elders there, but he did in, in, verse, in chapter 16 talk about the apostles who have passed that leadership on to the elders. Okay? And we find in the New Testament that is, it is the elders who must be able to teach. That means that they are able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So you think there are Titus 1.9 and those um, uh, guidelines for choosing elders. These are the, the standards that Tite, Paul laid out and gave to Titus. And then we also had 1 Timothy 3 where he does the same thing. But in Titus he says they have to be able to teach because they, they need to be able to teach the Word of God and say this is what the Word of God is saying because there's all kinds of ideas out there as to what it's saying that are wrong. And they need to be able to say this is what the Word of God says. They also need to refute those who contradict. And Acts twenty twenty eight, Paul told the Ephesian elders to be on guard for all the flock. It's the elders who are given charge to watch over the flock, to be on guard for the flock, to not only watch for those outside the flock who may try to harm them, but those who might come into the flock and cause harm. So let's now walk through Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, and see what it is that our Lord has taught us. We're going to talk first about step one. So in church discipline, there are four steps, and we're going to walk through those. Okay, step one is found in verse 15. Matthew 18, 15, 
Jesus told his disciples, And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. So, every believer in Jesus Christ, every member of the church is responsible to do step one. Okay, so if you see your brother or sister sinning, and especially if the the sin is going on and they're not repenting of it, then you have the responsibility to speak up to them. Now, he says to do that in private. Okay, so you don't announce that to the church. That That's way too early. You, you go to them in private. You keep this as small as possible. Okay, and, and you go to them and you say, Brother, sister, I've noticed this and, and I believe you've sinned here. Now, you may have thought, Well, I've done that before, but I didn't know I was doing church discipline. Or... Somebody has come to me and confronted me, and, and hopefully we all have. Somebody's, you know, loved us enough to speak up. And you may not have thought that, wow, that was church discipline being done. We don't think of it that way because we we really don't talk about or call this church discipline at this stage because in most cases, that's the end. You point out sin to a brother or sister, and they say, well, you know, you're right. And will you help me and pray for me, uh, hold me accountable? And and so it's over at that point. And so you walk together with the you know with the Lord, and in the Lord. And and so that's why we don't really talk about it because it, it ends right at the first step. And and this happens a lot. Okay, this is regular. It should. This is normal. This is just the one another is being carried out right. And by the word sin here, he means uh, intentionally missing the mark of God's holy standards. It, you know, we, we talk about that word means missing the mark, but the idea is intentionally missing. Remember again, so you have the, the target and there's a, someone going to shoot an arrow at the target. And it's not that, well, I tried. It's not that. It's like the target is there and I'm shooting over here. Intentionally missing the mark. That's the idea in it. And then the word reprove, when he says that you should reprove him in private. Reprove actually means to bring to the light. Okay? So this brother or sister is sinning and, and other people haven't seen it maybe. Maybe they haven't even paid attention themselves or they've, they've become blind to their own sin. And you are exposing it to the light, but you're doing it privately. You're saying, here, I see a sin. And so at this stage is where facts are presented to justify the charges and the person is called to repent. And it's not just a vague idea of, well, I kind of think you're sinning, but it's like, well, so, you know, whenever you and I talk and we talk about this, you know, you, you, you call me a hateful name. Okay. And, and so it's something specific. And you say, remember last Tuesday we were... You know, we were talking on whatever social media or something, and or we were face to face, and you said this, and you see, that's where the facts are presented, and the person is called to repent. Now, if no repentance happens, we move to step two. So, step two is now in verse sixteen. So Jesus goes on, but if he, the sinning brother, does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. 
So that original person who came to the brother or sister who was sinning and said, you know, here's sin that I see, and they may say, I'm not repenting. That happens sometimes. I'm not giving up what I like. Or maybe they I don't think that's sin. You know, you've tried your best, you've showed them the facts, you've showed them the scripture, but they don't agree. Then you bring one or two others to talk with them again. This time you do it for the purpose of examining and confirming that sin has occurred. That's why you bring others. And here, you know, uh, Jesus is, is going back to the Old Testament and saying, okay, just there's that by two or three witnesses. In other words, you don't act on just one person supposedly seeing things. And this is the way, you know, our systems, our court systems work and all. Um, and, and it's a good principle. So you bring them in so that they can hear the facts. They can examine those and then can confirm that, well, okay, you know, I can see what you thought, but, you know, that really wasn't a sin. And then they're able to show you, the guy who brought the um, charges, maybe it wasn't sin. But if it was, then they join you and say, you know, to the sinning brother or sister, brother or sister, yeah, that is sin. And you need to repent of that. And so there is confirmation. There's a witness of those facts and a witness that that a call to repentance was made. Now, if there's still no repentance or if there's still a dispute, the person that you're accusing says, I know there's three of you that see this, but I still I don't see it. then the matter is to be taken to the elders prior to step three. Now, this is where Jesus doesn't talk about that specifically here, but because the elders are given oversight of the flock, as I've detailed already, the elders are responsible for being able to judge in this whether or not, yes, a sin has happened or not. The elders are given oversight of the flock, as I mentioned, you know, Hebrews 13, 17 again, 1 Peter 5, 2. But they're also given oversight over the assembly, okay? So the, the elders have oversight over this gathering, okay? So that you don't just have somebody just stand up in the midst of the, the worship service and say, oh, you know, so-and-so has sin and I want to call it out, okay, because that's what step three is, where you bring it to the church. Okay, you don't have that. They need to go through the elders because, again, maybe they're wrong about that, okay? And so <clears throat> that's why the elders are responsible for looking into that. They're responsible for determining what does the Bible say because all of these things, these sins, they're, they're defined by Scripture, either by someone not doing what Scripture tells us to do or the things that Scripture tells us not to do, okay? And so the elders are responsible for saying, yeah, okay, this this is what they're saying, and yes, that is what the Bible says is sin. And then also to determine if a sin has actually taken place. The elders, as I said earlier, they must be able to teach. They have to handle accurately the word of truth. Uh, where Paul in 1 Timothy 3.2 there and 2 Timothy 
<clears throat> to be able to bring the truth of Scripture to bear on the situation. You remember what Paul said about uh, Scripture, that wonderful verse about it being God-breathed. He says it's profitable for teaching, for reproof. And there's that, that word again, for reproof, that bringing to the light. Okay, it's the, the same verb, same word. One's a verb, one's a noun. It's the same word, though. Okay? <clears throat> to bring it to the light. So... We use the Scripture to bring things to the light. Scripture is the standard. Scripture is the light. You know, thy word is a lamp to my feet, right? It's the light that shines. It's also useful for correction and for training in righteousness. And so the elders are to determine if charges are valid. And if they're valid, then the elders at that point will call the person to repentance. If they still don't repent, then we go to step three. Matthew 18, the first part of verse 17. Jesus goes on. And if that person refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. We'll stop there. So if the elders have determined that sin has indeed taken place, and that it was serious enough, in other words, it's a pattern of sin. You know, we're not going to tell it to the church if, you know, you come and say, you know, my husband, you know, he was really grumpy with me last Thursday. We're not taking that to the church, okay? Uh, so, it may be something that, you know, you need to talk with him about. But it has to be something that's serious enough for us to bring to the church. And so, the, that's another thing the elders are going to do. They're going to examine this. They're going to say, yes, we see a pattern of sin here. And so it warrants at this point, and there's been enough time for repentance, we will bring this now to the church. At this point, at step, once we're at step three, all of the necessary fact-finding and all of the necessary discussions have been completed. That, that's, that's what steps one and two are for, to present the facts to discuss those, to determine has sin occurred? Is it really a sin? That's all been completed by the time we get to step three. And so at step three, the only thing that remains is for the sinning member to repent. And so at that point, when the elders bring it and tell the church, then what they do is they are engaging the con- congregation when we gather together to join them in calling that person to repent. And that's what we did uh, back uh, well, at any time we tell you to call someone to repentance, what we're saying is join us. There's already been that, that first person, and then the, the, the two or three, and then the elders. And so now we're saying join us in calling them to repentance. And so if you have a relationship with them especially, you should reach out to them and you should say, okay, sins have happened and they told us about those sins and you need to... Repent, and, and I love you, and I want you to repent so that you can be restored not only to those brethren, but also to the Lord in a right relationship with Him. And we, we say that this is to be done in the assembly. It's done by the church. The authority is given to the church, led by the elders, because Jesus says in a minute, tell it to the church. But then there's the 1 Corinthians 5, 4 and 2 Corinthians 2, 6, where he's, he brings in, Paul brings in the, the congregation there. So let's go now to step 4, the rest of verse 17. 
So he goes on and says, And if he he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. So the person is given more time to repent. But then after, if they don't repent, the elders will establish a time for putting the person out of the church because they're unrepentant. And they will instruct the flock to join them in removing the person from membership of the church. And this action is completed by the entire congregation when they are assembled for worship. Again, First Corinthians 5, 4, 2 Corinthians 2, 6. Okay, it's something that the church does as a church. Okay, but they do it under the leadership of the elders. The elders determine what should happen and they instruct the church to do this. The elders are also to instruct the congregation as to how they should relate to the person who's been removed from membership. So there's a couple of scenarios there. One is where the person is uh, allowed to continue in uh, to, to attend the church meetings, okay, in some cases, because there's not a danger to the church. And so while you are treating them as an unbeliever, you, you, we want them to hear the gospel. You want them to hear the word of God. And so you still welcome them to come to the church if there's not a danger in that. Jesus says to treat them as a Gentile and a tax gatherer, just a, a way of saying these are those that, that they, they're not part of the church. Okay, they're, Basically, you're treating them like an unbelieving visitor. So we welcome unbelievers who are not... Uh, who are visiting, we welcome them. Come hear the gospel. Hear the word of God. Okay, And if this person is showing by their pattern of life, that by their behavior, that they're behaving more like an unbeliever than a believer, in some cases we want them here to keep hearing the word of God. But our, our spiritual interaction must focus on the gospel. So we're not declaring them to be an unbeliever. We're saying that their their behavior is like an unbeliever. And so we have to treat them like an unbeliever. Because in reality, they may not, might not be a believer. If they're going on this long in unrepentant sin, they might not be believers. And the most loving thing we can do is to, to share the gospel with them over and again anytime we have a, the opportunity. And please understand, when Jesus says... There in verse 17 at the end, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. That's a command. That's an imperative. It's not an option. Okay? So when the church has gotten to this point and we put them out of the church, Jesus himself commands you and me to treat them this way, to think of them this way. It is a command and it is disobedience to not do that. Disobeying Jesus. Now, in some circumstances, the elders may determine that to protect the flock, to protect the unity of the flock, that the excommunicated person is not allowed at church gatherings. And in situations like that, some you know sometimes there's still unavoidable contact with them. They may be family. You may have work dealings with them. You may have business dealings with them. Things like that. Um, those are understandable. But church members should not meet with the removed person for Christian fellowship. 
They're not behaving as a Christian. We're to treat them as an unbeliever. And so you should not have Christian fellowship with them. Again, if you do have contact, then any religious, anything that happens should be the gospel. Okay? That's the loving thing to do, is to share the gospel with them. And even believers need to hear the gospel, right? So if they are a believer, they still need to hear the gospel. And they need to bring themselves in line with that gospel that they claim to believe. And maybe they do believe it. But the person who continues in unrepentant sin, they're indicating by their current behavior, they, they indicate that their current behavior doesn't match the profession of faith. And if they are a divisive person, interaction with them needs to be limited. Why? It needs to be limited to protect the flock from potentially divisive influence. That leads us to Titus 3.10, 10 and 11. Another important passage that we mention in our bylaws as a part of this church discipline process. Because sometimes this is necessary. This is that second scenario I was just telling you about. So if you would turn with me there to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Paul says, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. You say, how does this tie in with Matthew 18? Well, they can overlap. In some situations, they overlap where, and I'll talk about this, where, where we're at in the church discipline process, there's a divisiveness. But sometimes it can be appropriate where a person is just, they're being divisive and, and you warn them twice. And if they won't stop being divisive, then the elders should put them out and say, church, we're now putting them out and you recognize that with us. Sadly, there are many ways to be divisive. I'll give a few examples. Undermining authority, telling lies, teaching false doctrine, causing strife, being contentious, being quarrelsome, and even opposition to being disciplined, like fighting back against discipline that has been established. This, this is what the Scripture says. This is a real sin. Proverbs 6.19, this is... God's thinking, and we have to, to care about one another to not let them go to this. Proverbs 6, 19 tells us that God hates the one who spreads strife among brothers. And so we want to prevent that. As I've said, this is a loving act by Christ. It's a loving act by His church. Whether we're talking Matthew 18 and or Titus 3. But... Sometimes it's not received well. Think about Hebrews 12, verse 11 there. It talks about discipline. And, and he uses the example of parental discipline. Okay? So as I said earlier, you know, when we're disciplined, whether it's our parents disciplining us or the church is disciplining, however that goes, it's God directly disciplining you uh, in some way. It's never pleasant. And he says it doesn't seem joyful at the time, but it seems sorrowful. 
You know, when you're being disciplined, you don't feel happy about it because it's supposed to be unpleasant. Okay, that's the whole point of it, to get you to, to stop the sinful behavior and to walk in righteousness. And so he says there, Hebrews twelve eleven, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. And then just four verses later, the writer commands us to make sure that, quote, no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, verse 15. You see, so what can happen is when a person is disciplined, that they can become bitter about it, and that bitterness spread like a, a bitter root throughout the congregation, throughout the flock. And I've seen this happen, and some of you have probably seen it happen too in, in churches in previous experiences where you know a, a bitter person, because sometimes because of discipline or other things, they they become bitter and then they spread that throughout the flock and we have to we have to be on guard we have to make sure it's a command that that make sure that does not happen and so if the person who's been disciplined if their observed behavior indicates that this is likely to occur then we have to follow the mandate here in Titus 3:10 Hebrews 12:15 and we have to sever all ties with that person you see, the person in Titus 3.10 is a factious person. They lead people into taking sides. They cause factions, you know, there's divisions. They disrupt the unity of the church body. They pursue their own agenda. They may even split a church to accomplish what they desire. Biblical counselor Paul Tauchus explains, not surprisingly, no one in the church is more likely to shout foul while accusing leaders of violating Matthew 18 than the factious man whose power of influence lingers on. And then what he hopes to accomplish is this, that church leaders are intimidated and the rightful action they should be doing is stalled. And he's, this is very insightful. This is somebody who's been pastoring for a while. And he has seen this. Likewise, Paul told the, told the Roman church, keep your eye on those who cause, who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you've learned and stay away from them. Romans sixteen seventeen. I need to cover one other uh, related topic here real quick. There is such a thing as shepherding discussions between churches or between church leaders. Okay, This is normal. This happens all the time. Sometimes it, when, it, when it is necessary. Elders may share appropriate information with leaders of another church when that church needs to know. Now... You can rest assured that you know, if you're causing trouble, we're not just picking up the phone and calling every church in Tulsa. And that doesn't happen, okay? But if you tell us, I'm now going to this other church, and you've been somebody, you're somebody who's under discipline, or you've given us cause for serious concern, we will call that church at leaders, only the leaders, and we'll say, you need to know about this. They need to know how to shepherd 
that person appropriately. Because if that person, if they say, okay, yeah, we'll let that person continue coming and maybe become a member, they need to know how to shepherd that person. They need to be aware of concerns. This practice is supported by many New Testament mentions of people who cause leaders concern. Uh, you think about Second Timothy 4.14 and 15, where Paul tells Timothy there that Alexander the coppersmith, he's, he's done me much harm. Watch out for him. Okay. Um, in Third John, the Apostle John, the, the Apostle of Love, right? He says to that church, you know, this man Diotrephes, he loves to be first. He unjustly has accused or does accuse the leaders with wicked words. And he doesn't accept what the leaders are teaching. John warned that church. This needs to happen. But only when it needs to happen. For example, uh, we, your elders, would not appreciate it if a church had a member who was causing division, were factious, and they knew they were coming to our church and they didn't tell us. We would not appreciate that. And... We, we love and care for other churches, other godly churches. And they love us. And we need to help one another shepherd our people appropriately. And sometimes we do need to alert them to any problems. And we might, if somebody tells us, okay, so-and-so is coming to your church and we've had some problems, they've caused some division, we might say, well... We've talked to them, and we will allow them to come, but we will stay alert until they prove otherwise. I want to read something that we're all very familiar with, 1 Corinthians uh, 11. You don't have to turn there unless you just like. Um, as we transition to the Lord's table... An extended passage on the Lord's Supper, but I want to skip ahead and read uh, what Paul says in this warning to all of us. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. See, that's why this is so serious. Because if people are in unrepentant sin and they're taking the Lord's Supper, they are guilty of the Lord's death and His blood. And they're bringing that guilt upon themselves. He says, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So the thing is to examine yourself first, then you can eat. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason... Many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. In other words, some people have gotten sick and others have died because they didn't do this. They've not dealt with their sin. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. Our our girls, you know, like all kids, didn't really appreciate being disciplined. 
and, and I didn't, you know, when I was a kid. But we, we would tell them regularly, be glad that we're disciplining you. You don't want God to have to step in and discipline you. I've been disciplined directly by the Lord, and it's not fun. And I would rather somebody have come to me and said, Hey, brother. Because when it gets to that stage, and the Lord has to step in, some are weak, some are sick, and some have died. It's that serious. Jesus paid for our sins, and that's what we focus on here at the table. He died for us and He paid for our sins. But we can't treat His death as if it's nothing. We can't trample on His death. That's uh, that horrible warning in Hebrews 6. They just trample underfoot the Son of God and put put Him to open shame. We can't do that. We have to say, Jesus died for me and I am going to be diligent in examining myself because I want to keep His bride pure I want to keep myself pure, and I want to do this out of love for Him. That's why we're doing this. That's why, that's why we, we spend time understanding what the Word of God says about this, why it's so important. We don't want any of you to trample underfoot the Son of God and put Him to open shame. And so we have to take this seriously. As we, in a moment, partake of the Lord's table, meditate on this thought. If you're a believer, say this to yourself quietly. Jesus died for my sin. Jesus, may I not trample that underfoot. But may I take my sin seriously.